and getting asylum is not arriving. It's far from arriving. There is so much that women have to be able to do until they maybe are even able to finance their own existence after that. Hey everyone and welcome back to Bariscop, the second episode of the third season, which I'm really happy to announce Lucas and I will co-host. Hi all from me as well and thank you for tuning in. We are joined today by Raquel Herzog, founder of Sau Association, a Swiss NGO that supports displaced women in Greece since 2015. Leanda, I actually had the pleasure to welcome Raquel at the University of Geneva for an event both of us co-organized with Forhaus back in September 2020. During this event, Raquel shared some very interesting insight on the refugee situation in Greece and so we thought it would be a perfect match to have her perspective as a person working on the ground and having founded her own NGO to dive deeper into the issues of refugee policy in Europe and examine in particular the situation of female refugees in Greece who constitute over 50% of the inhabitants in some Greek islands. And of course, we will also be talking about the ongoing humanitarian situation regarding the displacement of millions of Ukrainians because of the war. Without much further ado, let's jump into today's conversation. Hello, Raquel. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hello. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Um, so you've been working in Greece since what I'm going to put in apostrophe, the, the refugee crisis of 2015. And in particular, you, you've been working a lot on the developments in the, in the Greek island of Lesbos. For those that sort of don't know what this island is, why it is important in the context of Greek refugee situation, can you describe what, what is going on right there and why we need to know about this island? So Lesbos is the biggest one of about five islands that are extremely close to the Turkish countryside. So they are closer to Turkey than they are to Greece. And that's why both refugees that uh, want to go to Europe uh, through Turkey would arrive on these islands. Lesbos is the biggest one and therefore a major hotspot to that situation. The actual situation is that there is major cuts in services for refugees after reception of asylum. That means after you get asylum, you have only one month of uh, housing and financial support. So after that, you're completely on your own and getting into the system that follows. So the the first system is the STIA program. One month, as I said, housing and, and financial support, 150 euros per person, that is. And to get into the following program, the Helios program, there's a lot of bureaucratic hurdles to start with. And those are also extremely delayed or were for the past two years, extremely delayed by COVID. Mm -hmm. They still are. So um, that leads a lot of refugees into a very bad situation. And that's those who are accepted. The ones who are not accepted yet, have a geographical restriction on the islands. They have to stay in the camps until they're either recognized as vulnerable or become a state, uh, receive the status of acknowledged refugee. And those people uh, have been under major cuts as to if you have um, several rejections, you would not be on the food list of the camps anymore. So there's a 
there's a severe problem of hunger in the camps. The Greek government decided to build closed camps on the Greek islands because they want to make a faster process in deporting people, which is actually very difficult. And they do not want people to be free on the islands anymore. So they're emptying the camps now to build bigger ones and prison-like ones. I think what what we all heard about as a as like the most famous camp in the context of the uh, Lesbos Island was Moria Camp, which was already at the time portrayed as a prison-like camp, as a even by Jean Tiegler in his book, La Honte de l'Europe, he wrote that it's like a concentration camp. So what is different about these new camps? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, we have to consider that Jean Tiegler was writing this in May 2019, when there were 7,000 people in Moria. Um, half a year late, no, even more than half a year, eight months later, in February 2020, there were 21,000 people there. So three times as much. And he already, at the time when there were 7,000, described it as la honte de l'Europe. So uh, this is really important. Um, the camp burned down when there were 14,000 people in September 2020. It was completely destroyed and a new camp was built. And the new camp, Mavovruni, is established on a former firing range of the Greek military. The bad thing is it took more than two years to do a winterization. That means to replace all the tents that had no uh, ground, no flooring with containers. So it was freezing cold for two winters. This uh, place is located directly at two beaches. So there is a lot of strong icy winds going through in winter. And it was really a terrible situation for two winters for the people living in there. Also, the ground is contaminated with lead due to the fact that it was a firing range. And this is proven to be harmful to health. So we don't have a much better situation for the last two years after Moria was destroyed. So you mentioned the, the last two years. Um, could you illustrate the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the people in these camps, on how they were treated, and maybe also if there were systemic changes induced by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, during the lockdowns, people have literally been imprisoned in those camps. So uh, um, that's also the reason why Moria was burned down, because there was obviously people couldn't stand being locked up so much anymore and not have access to uh, to proper food because they couldn't go out and buy some anymore. And one can imagine that this, this sort of prison situation led to raising frustration and aggression, obviously. So women and children are, of course, even more exposed to violence in such a situation. The women who are registered with us were supported online. Both of our teams have been amazingly fast in establishing remote support. Nevertheless, the women missed coming to the centers, which are basically the only place where they could relax and are not exposed to any danger. So it was, I mean, it was for everybody in the camp, a terrible situation uh, under COVID, but I think obviously um, mm -hmm. more so for vulnerable people. You just uh, hinted at the, the situation of, 
uh, women being particularly vulnerable in in the context um, of a pandemic, but in general in a in the context of, of refugee camps. This is also something where Sao is specialized in in the situation of displaced women. Could you draw the picture of all the forms of vulnerabilities that in particularly women face in the context of uh, living in a camp and of fleeing their country in the context of displacement? Well, basically, if the UN says that three out of five women are victims of sexual gender-based violence during their flight, if we talk about single fleeing women, that number raises even to 95%. So the danger of gender-based violence for women that flee is enormous. And it, it is enormous on the way because often also women have to pay with their body to be trafficked from A to B because mm -hmm. they don't have the financial means, but they're also being exploited in any other form. In the camps, the main problem is that those camps are, are mostly built by military. So that means the infrastructure is made in a way that is just not suitable for women. Uh, very often we see that there is sort of fake uh, protection zones for women, meaning like in Moria, for instance, there was a protection zone for single women. So they were living in containers that had a fence around them, but the bathrooms and any sanitary uh, facilities were outside of that area. So that means a woman who get out of that area for single women with a, with a towel under her arm, it is very obvious to any aggressor that she has no protection. So there's, there's many, many things that put women in a constant 24-hour alert of being in danger in camps. So based on the problems you, you're illustrating, in what way the SAW operates and how which kind of assistance do you um, give to these people? So we run two, we're quite specialized. So we run two uh, day centers that are specialized on trauma-oriented psychosocial services. Therefore, we have specific uh, stuff as to social workers, psychologists uh, who take care of the women. And the first step to help them is just the, that they have a, an address where they can come up with their specific needs, with their specific problems, and are addressed specifically as to women, obviously. And also the centers are obviously uh, safe spaces where no man comes in. So it's very clear that women um, can relax there. and do not always have to look over their shoulder to see if some danger is in the neighborhood. So many women come to the centers and just lay down in the middle of talking women in sleep because mm -hmm. it's not about the noise, it's about the security that makes you be able to sleep. And we're doing the psychosocial services mostly in, in groups, but also in individual sessions. And this all under very high 
let's call it moral standards. We, we do not take pictures of the women. We do not keep files of the women that would recognize them with their name and identity in any way. Uh, it's all encoded. We um, have very clear uh, code of conduct, but also uh, do no harm principles that are uh, implemented so that we in no circumstances further harm these women who are highly traumatized. We register especially vulnerable women because of course we're limited in numbers. We, um, what does that mean? That means we cannot take every woman that is, um, for instance, on Lesbos or comes to Athens with a request to register with us. Mm -hmm. So we're limited uh, in number of people that, that the centers can accept. We have long waiting lists. And when we have free space, we make sure that um, we keep uh, a good mix of nationalities also uh, within uh, the women that we accept. But are that top nationalities sorry to interrupt you <laughs> no problem top nationalities at the moment afghan afghani women around 70% then still 14% syrians and the rest is quite mixed mainly uh, west africa so we're talking congo we're talking Cameroon, although it's not a war country in Cameroon, for instance, gay people are highly persecuted. So that's one thing. And, um, and we also have a lot of uh, women from Somalia who are very often victims of bombing and have lost um, legs or arms or are highly injured. Yeah. Well, there is so much, I mean, I feel like there is so much that one could still go into further, especially also because it's a topic um, around the situation of women, which is super invisible, I feel like, in, in media. What you were already hinting at the fact that during the pandemic, you had problems to open the center. Could you maybe still tell us a bit more how Stau navigated the pandemic, what this, what you had to change, what you had to rethink in the context of lockdowns and of severe restrictions of, of operation? Yeah, actually, we were not able to receive women at the centers anymore. The centers had to stay closed. So the only like physical contact um, that was happening was when we brought women to hospitals and or when we brought emergency needs to women uh, somewhere in an apartment or um, or outside the door, quick handover of uh, major necessities. Um, so that was the only physical part. Then there was, um, first of all, uh, the, the team you can imagine was was quite um, quite overwhelmed in a very first moment with their own security, with their own fear of getting severely sick. Um, but I was really amazed how fast the teams were in implementing a completely new way of work. Within a month, mm -hmm. we had a, a full remote program where the psychologist would be on the phone together with a translator and a woman and do an individual session. It was not always possible because you can imagine if, for instance, a woman has uh, an issue with her husband and she's locked up in an apartment with him, it's really hard for her to 
get out of the way of the aggressor to have an individual session. So they were trying to, to do that by delivering some uh, food coupons or something like that um, in order to be able to briefly speak with a woman and see what, what her needs are. The advantage of this remote program is that our outreach is even further now. There's mm -hmm. a lot of women who have been members of our Amina Center in Athens. That means they have basically asylum, most of the women there and they are able to work after some time. And because we have professionalized the remote services, we could serve some women that were getting jobs in the tourist industry, for instance, uh, on Rodos Island in a hotel. And they were constantly uh, followed by the team for questions of what do I do if I don't get my pay? What do I do if I'm asked to do something else? Mm -hmm. So that has been a, a positive outcome, let's say, of the crisis. If we look at the situation in, in Greece, you, you were mentioning the pandemic and thus illuminating the past. What developments do you think are awaiting you in the future? Are there some policy changes or new waves of migration that will be arriving? Could you paint a small picture of uh, the future developments that are awaiting well, our main concern, obviously, on Lesbos is the fact of the closed center. If um, this closed center is being built, it's being built in the north of Lesbos. So that would be at least an hour and a half drive away from our center. And the question is, will women still be able to go out and have our services or will they be locked up in the camp? And that would mean for us that we would have to close down our operations on Lesbos. We already decided we definitely do not want to be part of such a structure. That means we would not go in or apply to be in an organization that works within this premises because we think they're against human rights. Uh, we don't think so. We know so, I have to say. Greece and Europe know so too. So there is a big question why they're even considering to do that. That is basically one of our main issues that we have at the moment, not knowing whether we can continue operations on Lesbos at all or not. Of course, you can imagine that it is very dramatic to think that women who are victims of gender-based violence will not have a place where they can address their problems to. Because if you would put up a container in the camp where you could go and address such issues, a woman walking into that container would be stigmatized even more and therefore be in even more danger. So we don't mm -hmm. see how that would be solved at all. And then we've been generally exposed to changes every couple of months since we worked in Greece. And therefore, it's really, really hard to make any strategic plans for the organization. Yeah. But I feel like also, I mean, the, the women that are now able to work with you, that's a very, very small fraction. I mean, the, the biggest majority um, is in a situation where they don't even have, uh, the, the, obviously, the Zoom calls, um, where they don't have a center to go to. Um, what, what can one do furthermore? Like, what would be, like, your main requests for that 
actually all women can have that kind of access because I mean obviously you're as an NGO doing a huge work and there are other NGOs that are also contributing massively but the reality is that you are a very very small organization and there is a huge amount of women that would need that support so what would be like your main um, requests in terms of more structural changes providing this kind of support I think the EU, if they accept that Greece has closed camps on islands, they will have to organize some sort of control system to make sure that we don't have major violations of human rights happening in there. Mm -hmm. Because all NGOs at the moment assisting Greece in taking care of these people in a proper way, all paid by private money will not will literally not be able to to be operational anymore and it means that the people coming to the mainland would not already have a place where they could go to or know of so they would be spit out from the islands at some mm -hmm. point and then arrive on the mainland and will have to find their way to organizations like us because at the moment, our center in, on, on Lesbos is called Bashira. So every woman that was registered with Bashira has a right when they go to the mainland to walk into Amina and will be registered immediately. In Which is a center in Athens. Exactly. So they already know and have some sort of a security that they will be taken care of in some way once the whole system changes again you know that if you're if you're for two years in a camp it's also very difficult to leave there to pack because you've made acquaintances and you're you're being kicked out within one day sometimes women start literally from the scratch again when they get asylum and getting asylum is not arriving it's far from arriving. There is so much that women have to be able to do until they maybe are even able to finance their own existence after that. You, you now mentioned, obviously, two aspects which are really important and which we'll also try and cover now in, in the following parts of this episode. Firstly, the aspect of EU system level, which, which obviously has a lot of faults and which is also in current, currently also under flux and being renegotiated. And obviously in the situation of Ukraine also, there are, there are being changes that are being made. And secondly, a really important aspect, which we can also maybe still touch upon, which is the situation of um, NGOs, very legally speaking, um, in Greece. So, so let's first look at EU um, level and then still, yeah, touch upon the situation mm -hmm. of NGOs. Yes. So if, if we're talking about the systemic level, I think there are two issues that are currently very hotly debated. The first one is Frontex and the second one is the new Swiss protection status S. So with regards to, to Frontex, we see uh, a harsh debate on the role this uh, organization or institution plays. We see that they receive more funding. Still, they are very heavily criticized by NGOs um, and the civil society. So Raquel, um, maybe you could, you know, give your input based on your experiences in Greece on the role Frontex plays. So to sort of explain to our listeners um, what they actually do from, from your perspective. And then 
give us your take on the criticism that is often voiced regarding Frontex. Okay, so the, the role of Frontex on Lesbos is to support the Greek Coast Guard in securing the border. So if we take Lesbos, there is like in the north, there is eight sea miles and there is no international waters because each country has six sea miles, sea, sea miles of water before the international waters start. And because there are only eight sea miles or in the south, there are about 11. That means the Turkish sea border and the Greek sea, sea border is somewhere in the middle of the, these, these uh, eight or 11 sea miles. That means Frontex and the Greek Coast Guard are patrolling there and looking out for rubber boats, trying to take the people on before they reach land, because once they reach land, they are on the paper, let's put it that way, allowed to ask for asylum. Before that, as long as they're in Turkish waters, Frontex and the Greek Coast Guard cannot do anything. Once they're in Greek waters, they are according to European law and international sea law, they are obliged to rescue them and to bring them to the shores of that country and to let them ask for asylum. What is happening now is that the Greek Coast Guard is actively pushing back people. I think we're coming to that later when it we talk about maybe the activists that were trialed. And Frontex is, according to evidence, aware of turning their backs, so not really looking at that, and in the worst case, assisting to that kind of activities. So there is generally big concerns um, about the methods but also about the management of Frontex. European parliamentarians have made a 17-page paper uh, documenting the grievances of the agency, so there is a lot of stuff going wrong according to that paper. And one thing that I'd like to point out is that recently a Norwegian photographer has been arrested on Lesbos for taking a picture of a Frontex vessel in the port of Mytilene, that's the main city of Lesbos. And it's this port is, the, those vessels are in the middle of the city. So you could take a picture of the cathedral and have a Frontex vessel in your picture. And he was arrested and is going to trial later on. He was released uh, on a caution. Frontex, according to the new pact of migration is in charge of ensuring the respect for fundamental rights. So if mm. this is so, I do not see why taking a picture of an agency protecting fundamental rights in Europe, paid by Europe, like paid by the people, it would be a crime to take a picture of their activities. There is something really suspicious there. And I believe European citizens have a right to know what that enormous sum of money is exactly being used for, and the agency obviously needs to be controlled and be accountable. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it has about 750 million, right, of funding. Yeah. yeah. Just to follow up on what you were now saying with the trials, because I feel like that really needs to, needs to be um, addressed right now. Um, so 
the in 2021, there had there were 24 activists that were actually trialed in Greece for helping refugees reach Europe, um, and that were charged, amongst other things, with human trafficking and espionage. And I want, like, what what is your view on that? What what for um, how free can NGOs actually operate in exactly these eight um, miles that are very contested? Um, and where also Frontex is operating, obviously. For the for the one organizations who are observing border control and sea rescue is really critical. That's mm -hmm. that's obvious. And recently there seems to be increasing evidence of illegal pushbacks by the Greek Coast Guard. There is organizations working particularly on that. So you have to imagine these organizations are via social media in contact with refugees in Turkey and they instruct them to send their position if they're going on the journey across the sea they're mm -hmm. instructed to give their positions at all times of the journey they're instructed to take pictures of themselves once arrived on an island with a location that is that is clearly on that island that's how they trace that these people are according to that evidence being taken to a quarantine camp in the north of Lesbos under COVID explanations and taken from there at midnight in the dark, put back on a Greek Coast Guard vessel and then brought to the Turkish sea border, put on little plastic rescue boats uh, floating during the night in sea until the Turkish coast guards apparently rescue them. So there is there is increasing evidence of that. Organizations that have been speaking out openly about those pushbacks were silenced by being arrested and charged. For organizations such as we are, there's no there's no danger to work but I have to say it's not much easier because we're in an infinite bureaucratic loop having to register with the Greek Ministry of Migration. Well, my take is on, on what you said up to now is you, you paint a picture of criminalization of people that support refugees. You paint a picture of administrative procedures that have obviously not the goal of supporting the vulnerable people. You paint a, a difficult picture for, for everyone that tries to help. And now we see in Switzerland that facing the massive influx of Ukrainians, our government activated protection status S, which enables refugees and people fleeing Ukraine to have way more liberties and sort of accustoms the demands that have been voiced by NGOs for all um, refugees. So we sort of see a moment that now somewhat political will is, is there and new measures are being taken. Before the, the backdrop and your experience that you have in Greece in this vastly different context that you explained up to now, what is your take on this protection status as and what does it say about our governments and our societies? Well, if we're able to do of what we're doing now for everybody, then I highly welcome this kind of a, a new approach. What has been really strange in the past is that Switzerland, that always claims to be so independent from the EU, 
has been acting over-adjusted when it came to migration. A, helping to blow up Frontex with even more money is one thing, but um, also a lot of the Swiss humanitarian values that were also famous before were suffering a lot under the adaption uh, to the EU uh, when it comes to Dublin, for instance. Um, the Switzerland would always argument that they cannot do something else than than the EU because they would uh, be in a critical situation. So that's one thing that it, that I found really disappointing before. What is interesting now, or yeah, interesting might even be a bit cynical, but three months ago, we were also worried about the human rights and especially the ones of women in Afghanistan. And right now, the fact that Afghan girls are not even allowed to go to secondary school anymore hardly makes the news. So the Ukrainian conflict has a priority and so do Ukrainian refugees. And all of a sudden everything is possible that was not before is very cynical to people who have been exposed to a former system. If you think of 23 year old Syrian girl that was the head of a family of five women, including her 92-year-old grandmother, and was supposed to bring her by foot over the Balkan route to join the family in Sweden, and who reads the news now that in all Europe, trains are for free for Ukrainian refugees. That's quite a cynical thing to face for her. We are rightly so very concerned about the situation in Ukraine, but we should not forget that Syrians, Afghans, Somali, people from Congo, they're all victims of just the same toxic powers as the Ukrainians. And it's on one hand great to see that we're able to mobilize money-wise, but also infrastructure-wise, mm -hmm. fast procedures and so on, now that so many Ukrainians have to flee. But I really fear we're building up a class society when it comes to refugees, which I'm very worried about. Because why can people show more compassion and be more helpful when war victims are white, European, Christian? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a period in time where we have to do a lot of rethinking. And it's in, in and of itself, the mobilization of solidarity in this really absolutely atrocious war is extremely positive, but it is, as you said, very cynical when we regard policies that have that people um, had to face that weren't white Christian, sort of from the European continent. So, Raquel, thank you very much for the the illustration that you did up to now, and I would like to sort of question you on on another subject or to illuminate a, a different aspect of, of your CV is that you're the first guest on Bariscope that has founded um, his or her own NGO. So you really have a, a perspective and an experience of acting on the ground, sort of do your own thing and most importantly do the things you seem are necessary and appropriate in a direct way. So could you maybe illustrate your motivation, but also the, the path and the steps you, you took until now that are sort of necessary to, to found a known NGO? Well, basically the, the first intention was just to not be passive in this huge impact that 
uh, happened in 2015. So I was always a socially committed person, uh, informed about, uh, about the world. I would say I was always a political person. So in 2015, when this picture of the drowned island Kurdi was going around the world, there was a, a strong moment where I was watching this on TV and then going to bed and then sitting in my bed thinking like, this is not possible. I cannot just go to bed after seeing this. I want to do something. And I'm a very spontaneous person. So I booked a flight the same night to Lesbos. And then I had about a month's time to inform myself a little bit of who is on the ground. What are they doing? What could I be possibly doing? and uh, decided to go there as an individual volunteer because none of the groups were actually that were explaining why they did it and how they did it were completely convincing. I felt like I go like an individual volunteer. I volunteered for about three months and then the Greek authorities on Lesbos Island, because you can imagine we were about five and a half thousand volunteers invading this island and helping out, which was welcomed but had no structure. So the Greeks were getting a bit nervous and wanted everybody to register. And you could only register as a volunteer if you were part of an organization. Since I couldn't really, with my full heart, sign up for an organization, I found that it was the most easy way since I was going back to Switzerland for a two weeks break anyway, to just found an association in Switzerland you need two people, you need statutes, and that's about it. So together with a friend, we did that. And I went back and being being just a, a volunteer of SAO, a, a single one to start with. And then it went on from there. At some point with some friends, we took over the biggest um, warehouse of eight NFIs. NFIs is non-food items. In Greece, we were distributing donations from all over the world in on Lesbos, but also to other places in Greece. Uh, funnily so, things were delivered to Lesbos because uh, Lesbos was just a, such a focal point at that point. It was only a couple of months later when I realized that I've gotten myself into something that would not just be a period of my life of a couple of months where I engaged in something, but that this topic would be my main topic for the next couple of years because it's it's so obvious how big the needs are. The fact that we focused on women was a big part of that because on March 8, International Women's Day 2016, we rescued a group of people in which uh, there was a family that I just mentioned before so a 23-year-old woman with two younger sisters and one younger cousin and their 92-year-old 92, grandmother. And uh, we searched for them for about four hours and found them at a random beach after four hours because their boat was taken over by winds and brought somewhere to a beach where nobody before and after had arrived. Because it was such a special rescue, I, I stayed in contact with this 23-year-old Ruha, who spoke perfect English because she studied English literature at the University of Damascus. And I found out that there was no special treatment for the 92-year-old in Moria, 
So I tried to place her somewhere else where vulnerable people are placed, but she could only be placed with one of her granddaughters. So I decided not to split the, the family even more and just rented a bigger apartment and lived with them for four months. And this was the eye opener when it comes to the situation of women that flee, because for these women, the situation was so difficult, even in, a, in the shelter of an apartment, that I started guessing how the situation would be for women in the camp. And since Ruha speaks a lot of languages, Kurdish, Turkish, uh, Arabic, English, uh, she and I went to Moria, uh, sneaked in through the through the broken fence on a, two days a week and started interviewing women in Moria to find out what their problems are and what their needs are. And that led to us deciding that we will focus with the organization completely on uh, women. So it's, it's not like I decided today I change my job and I do something else. It's more like at the time I had, uh, I had an agency where I was organizing events and organizing artists for parties. You can imagine if you're on Lesbos, um, it was something I could do remote and you get an email concerning uh, vulnerable people that have just arrived on this island or you get an email where somebody wants a clown for a kids party um, the focus obviously goes to the the more dramatic issue and the more heart touching issue so I over the first year dropped my agency and got involved completely with so it's quite an impressive path um, that you illustrate up to now and I'm wondering also on, on a personal level what kind of um, obstacles or what resistances does this can-do approach and this really practical underground action, um, what resistances do you face? Um, what kind of satisfaction do you get out of this work? And, and how do you assess your impact? Just having in mind that I think many of our listeners would also or, or are somewhat evaluating future options on, on, on what they want to do, if they want to join a big organization, if they want to do their own thing. So what is your your take on that on a personal level also? Well, first of all, it's really important to say that I was never alone in this. I made the initial point, but I've I've always been in a team of dedicated women from the scratch. and. I think it's really important to have people around you when you start something like that, that uh, share same values. And it's really important that these uh, shared values are, are really discussed in, a, in, a, in, in the, the, the hard way, not the soft way. You really have to be sure that you're on the same level with people, especially if you deal with such a, with such a delicate topic. And um, you need, in my case, I, I was completely dependent also on having local partners within the organization, people who know exactly what the context of Greece is, who speak Greek, which I don't. Um, and uh, on, in, in my case, I would say without Teresa, our field director in Greece, who I met in a very early stage in January 16, not working with her from the start, but uh, she is basically the heart of the organization when it comes to 
standards of how we work when it comes to following the moral compass of the organization and mm -hmm. bringing that into the teams. Um, that is that is very important to have have and find people or be lucky enough in my case to find people like that to follow your way. Super, super interesting. Um, Lucas, do you have any final thoughts before we go into our last question? Yes, um, actually, there is still one point I would like to ask you, Raquel, is um, the advantages and disadvantages of small organizations versus um, bigger ones, if you would briefly examine that. Well, uh, I've never worked in a big organization, uh, so I, I, I cannot really compare, but I can see from working on the ground that um, obviously, decision processes are very efficient in our organization because we're small and therefore we probably react on new situations a bit faster than big organizations. So I think that's really a quality that we have and that is also much needed in Greece because of those uh, numerous system changes and the Greek ministries um, changes in political parties uh, that have a say um, as to being fast adapters to what comes up to us versus big organizations that uh, are probably a bit slower in that process. All right, so Akin, maybe you know, we always ask the same last question to our guests. And this would be, do you have three tips that you would give your 20 year old self with all the knowledge you have now looking back? To myself, travel more, even more. <laughs> because it widens the horizons and makes you discover people of all different kinds and makes you more sensible for the bigger picture and not to turn in, in our own very spoiled circle all the time. So that is one. Do you have uh, two more that you could give us and our listeners? Well, in, in respect to, to my work, it would be for, for, especially young people to talk about female refugees because they're 50% being formed, talk about Ukraine, but not forget about all victims of war, persecution, exploitation, climate change, mutilation, name it. Also, I think it's really important for young people to involve parents in what they are, about the topics they're interested in. The older generation needs to be woken up by the youngsters about current topics and then also I think young people often think that they cannot donate because they don't have much money but a lot of small amounts make big work too. Thanks so much for this call to action at the end and um, so that's also to all of you listeners um, to, to also um, in a certain extent, take accountability for what is happening in this world currently and um, not see yourself as being too small to make a change. Um, yeah, and and support amazing organizations such as SAO. We will leave definitely all the links um, to, to the website and to ways you can support SAO in the show notes. And with that, uh, we've reached the end of this first episode. Um, thank you so, so much, uh, Raquel, for being here. It was, as always, an incredibly important and um, a bit uncomfortable, but very necessary conversation. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me.
and we will be back very soon with the next episode and uh, we hope you all have a great day do follow us on instagram send us any comments you have from from this episode and um yeah stay tuned for for the next episodes bye-bye thanks everyone bye